Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. You've been listening to special live coverage from Global News of the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Kamala Harris has been sworn in as the vice president. An historic day in America, especially after the turmoil of the Trump presidency. Donald Trump has left the White House for the final time this morning. He has now arrived at his Mar-a-Lago golf course in Florida as a private citizen. The Trump era is over. A new era has begun in America. Joe Biden is the new president, taking the oath of office outside the Capitol building this morning. Remarkable to think that just two weeks ago, we saw the violent, deadly storming of that Capitol building by extremist Trump supporters. Trump, of course, never conceded. He did not even attend the inauguration, the first president to do, to not attend an inauguration in 150 years in America. Biden's inauguration address pleading for unity in the country, talking about the pandemic, the turmoil we've seen in the last few years, and the path forward. We got lots of great coverage for you here this morning. I'm joined by Keith Baldry. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, it's me. So I thought the inauguration address by Biden hit, hit all the right tones. Yeah. He, he hit all the right notes, I thought. And I don't think Stunning anyone... contrast. Yeah, I don't know if you, anyone could watch that and not come away feeling like, okay, finally we turn, turned a corner to some hope like and get some back to some normalcy. This dark cloud has passed. This four years of insanity under Trump, uh, the coarseness, the divisiveness, the anti-science, anti-facts uh, era, hopefully is gone for good. Joe Biden, today you're right. I think he hit all the chords. Uh, he talked about unity, uh, working together, moving on. It was great to see Mike Pence, the vice president, on the podium, on the, on the stage as well. Um, Trump Stand, wasn't there. Standing near the spot where the uh, they built the gallows for the yeah. people who were going to hang him two hang weeks him. ago. Uh, Trump wasn't there, and he joins Andrew Johnson as the last president not to attend a, an inauguration of the successor. Johnson, of course, was a, a racist, uh, one of the worst, if not the worst president of all time, and Trump's in, in the proper company, quite frankly, in joining Andrew Johnson in that dubious distinction. Okay, Biden sounding a lot of notes for hope and optimism going forward here. Let's have a listen to a couple of things that the new president had to say here he is talking about violent the violence we saw in the capitol two weeks ago is biden here we stand just days after a riotous mob thought they could use violence to silence the will of the people to stop the work of our democracy to drive us from this sacred ground it did not happen it will never happen not today, not tomorrow, not ever, not ever. That really important point to make. Yeah, no, it, <clears throat> again, great, great point. I mean, that was uh, discussing what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Biden. Again, we've, they've turned the page, I think. Uh, great that nothing happened in the Capitol. It went off without a hitch. Yeah. Now we'll see as the day unfolds what happens in the rest of the United States today and other U.S. state capitals. Everyone's on high alert, but so far so good. Okay, you mentioned that Biden making that plea for unity in the country, especially after the division that we've seen in the United States over the last four years. So here's what Biden's had to say about that. Uh, the unity. Biden talking about unity here. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know 
They are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial and victory is never assured. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. Okay, every new president who comes in, especially if there's a change of party in the mm-hmm. White House, kind of strikes similar notes that we need to come together. This is the United States. We've got to lay down our, our arms here and work together. But, you know, a particularly a poignant, I thought, today. Yeah, so. because uh, the last four years were anything but unified. Uh-huh. It was the most divis- one of the most divisive eras ever in U.S. Uh, history. So, mm-hmm. But Joe Biden makes a good point. I mean, they've gone through a lot of turmoil in that country, and they still somehow come through it, uh, with, no. as he calls the better angels of their nature. So hopefully... Uh, we don't see a repeat of the last four years, but it's not guaranteed. I mean, d- democracy is never guaranteed in a democracy. You've got to keep fighting to make sure it, it remains intact. And, But I think the U.S. turned a page today, and I think it's a, it's a good one to have turned because uh, the last four years, again, were incredibly divisive and chaotic and destructive to that country. And I think there was a collective sigh of relief uh, right across that country. But you think about the challenges that are awaiting this president, though, with the pandemic, the economy and the joblessness that we've seen in the United States, with the the racial divisions we see in the country, the political divisions that are so stark and divided in the United States. I mean, this guy's got a lot of challenges. Well, all countries face the economic uh, uh, challenges because of the pandemic. The U.S. has a unique situation. The racism problem that was been highlighted and magnified the last four years and on display in the last year, Black Lives Matter and such, that's not going away. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a different uh, leader in charge now who will strike a different tone, a more positive tone. And I think uh, going forward, the prospects for unity are much greater than they were the last four years. All right, let's talk about the potential for Canada-U.S. relations here under a Biden presidency. He he already has a a pretty good relationship with Justin Trudeau, but, uh, you know, he, he talked today about repairing fractured relations around mm-hmm. the globe today in his inauguration address as well. But also on day one of his presidency, uh, he's canceling Bill, yeah. uh, he's canceling Canada's pipeline, well, the Keystone it, Pipeline. Climate change is the heart of his presidency, and mm-hmm. there's going to be other uh, decisions that are probably going to impact negatively uh, Canada's energy sector. Yeah. I think that's inevitable. But I think I think Canada also breathes a sigh of relief today that Joe Biden was was inaugurated with no violence. That we've moved unless on he work it. in the oil patch in Alberta. Unless he work in yeah, Alberta's not going to be happy about this, but I think Canadians, so uh, first blush, great, Trump's gone. As we move forward, though, keep in mind, the Dem- as we and I have talked about before, the Democratic Party of the U.S. is traditionally the protectionist party. That's They've right. been B.C.'s yeah. enemy on the softwood file, if you recall. The, it was the Democratic senators uh, in, uh, I think it was Max Backus in, in Montana, for example, who was really a thorn in the side of B.C. and Canada on the softwood, dis- uh, softwood lumber dispute years ago. That may resurface again, um, again, because the Democrats, you know, control of uh, basically the Senate and the House now. Uh, they're going to enact some policy 
policies that might have a negative impact on Canada. Well, but I think a lot of Canadians will trade that for getting mm, rid of Trump. Yeah, well, Trump was not popular in Canada. That's, well, that's for sure. He had his own sure. protectionist uh, policy. He put tariffs on all sorts of Canadian goods. And he had a very aggressive Buy, Amer Buy America only program. Well, so B Biden's Buy America too. He is. Like one, I, of, one of the things that Biden and Trump, one of the few things they agreed on was kind of a Buy America approach. I mean, you know, you could see the old fashioned sort of populist protectionism come up here. It certainly could. I think there's more of a chance, though, that there might be some flexibility, particularly towards Canada. As you mentioned, Biden and Trudeau get along well. Uh, I think there's more of a personal relationship there yeah. than there ever was with, with Trump. Okay, looking forward to the calls in the open line. Oh, so yeah. get set to call me and tell me your thoughts on the uh, the end of the Trump era, the beginning of the Biden era. Just real quickly, Keith, before we t before we take a break, just bring it back home here. Let's talk about the uh, the pandemic and the vaccine delay now. So now we got the news yesterday from Justin Trudeau that we're going to get zero co uh, Pfizer vaccine next week. Yeah, so Pfizer's, Pfizer's expanding its production facility in Brussels, so they have to put a, a, a sort of temporary halt or delay to a bunch of uh, vaccine manufacturing. And Canada is losing out as a result of that. It's not the end of the world, though. If anybody looks at the vaccine rollout plan, ours is all back-ended, back-loaded. Uh, again, most of the vaccinations are to occur after April, indeed after July. We're talking millions there. In the beginning, we're really not talking about a lot of vaccinations that we're planning. We're going to get through the long-term care sector by the end of next week. There's enough Pfizer to do that. Uh, the challenge, though, is to ensure Pfizer uh, comes in sufficient amounts for everyone who got the first shot to get the second shot 35 days later. That's the first challenge. But again, because our, our vaccine rollout plan was really supposed to ramp up after April, this is not, uh, this is an unfortunate and significant, um, downturn. Yeah, and it's Trudeau, not, not the end of the world. Trudeau, though, taking his lumps on it. I mean, his critics are going to say, have you been tough enough with this company? Did you phone the CEO? Did you raise hell over this? Well, you see Doug they Ford? Get, yeah. Well, I said, Doug Ford said, what, you should put a firecracker up his butt? Yin yang. Yeah. So. <laughs> Classic Ford, but you know, I I don't know. I mean, I don't think was there anything Trudeau could have done. Yeah, here? I know. What we're we're Canada's have a lot of leverage here. The yeah. entire world is at Pfizer's mercy right now because yeah. they're one of two companies. Uh, AstraZeneca is another one in, in the UK that's got approval. We're hoping that one comes into Canada too. There's going to be more vaccines approved, and there's going to be more vaccines available. I'm not sure there's much Trudeau could do right now. All right, welcome back. Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry is my guest talking about the inauguration of Joe Biden. Uh, phone lines are open here. Are you relieved that Trump is gone? Do you think Biden will be better? What do you think uh, Canada-U.S. relations will be like under a new Biden administration? Call me on that. i got open phone lines right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Kind of one of the strangest inaugurations we've ever seen. Of course, very small oh, yeah. crowd, socially distanced Everybody because of the pandemic. Everybody masked up. More soldiers than audience. 25,000 troops on the ground. I mean, it's just... It was just bizarre. He did have the A-list entertainment out there, though, right? Yeah, so Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga, J Lo. If you compare that to the Trump inauguration, he couldn't get anybody. He tried to get Elton John and yeah. Celine Dion. Yeah, they both turned him down. Couldn't get anybody. You know, he ended up getting a country uh, country singer. Uh, also, Garth Brooks was there. Garth Brooks. Yeah, Garth I mean, Brooks. Uh, no, it was it was a, a strange inauguration. Uh, again, no crowds of, or very small crowd, a smattering of people. People, standard applause from people on the on the platform, as you say, twenty five thousand National Guard members there. Uh, but again, it's great. No incidents. Not that anybody be foolish to try something there with that type of armed presence. But uh, all those former presidents there, including former Republican President Bush, 
Uh, the only former living former president who wasn't there was um, Jimmy Carter, and of course, well, sent his, Trump. Send his but, regards, send his wife uh, Rosalind. Uh, uh, get, uh, I think because you know of the pandemic, he's like ninety six years. He's ninety six. He's had a couple of spills this yeah. last year, and yeah. No, it was great to see the Republicans uh, there. Uh, you know, already you're seeing the Republicans bolt from Trump. Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, others are getting are just distancing themselves from Trump. There's going to be a rump faction of the Republican Party that will cling to Trump, uh, much to their, uh, I think, lack of success they're going to achieve because of that. Uh, but again, it's just uh, it's sort of this huge sigh of relief. You can just sense it going across the country. Trump said this morning, is it I'll be back? Well, we'll in some kind of form. There was talk in the last 24 hours, would he form a new political party? I think that Democrats maybe might actually like to see that. Oh, sure. Split, split the, the Republican split the vote. vote. Yeah, no, it'd be, uh, you know, George Wallace, uh, Ross Perot. Uh, split the vote. Helps the Democrats. Yeah, for sure. No, it's uh, bring it on, uh, what the Democrats would say. There's even talk of him starting a new TV network. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe he comes back to television and a reality show. Okay, or maybe not, or maybe it just goes away. We'll see. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Mike in Nanaimo. Hi, Mike. Yeah, listening to you guys, I sure hope that, uh, you know, your opinions don't make you look like you just support the left all the time. But anyway, it didn't vote for that reason. I think with Biden in power... Don't you think, Canada, don't you think Biden, don't you think Biden would be a, a nice change after what we've seen for the last four years? I mean, just generally, uh, well, I mean, forget the politics of it. I mean, don't you just think it gives people a little bit of hope? I think no? that the Canada-U.S. relation is going to be better because the left feeds the left. And, and uh, you know, I won't miss Trump for his rhetoric, but I'm going to miss Trump for what he stands for and what he supports, which is the right and capitalism. So I'm going to miss Trump for that reason. And it's not just uh, Canada and the United States. I'm talking about the planet. Well, I think a lot of people think Trump stands for divisiveness, coarseness, rudeness, misogyny, and racism. And that's why I think a lot of people want him gone and are okay. happy to see him go. Okay, let's go. let's go to Paul on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Paul. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. Good. Right on. Good riddance to bad rubbish. I feel like a weight has just been lifted out of yeah. my chest. It's about time. I can't believe the last four years. My only... The only people I feel bad for is myself and the late night talk show host. Because how are you going to make fun of Biden after you had that orangutan clown in there to <laughs> poke fun at for the last four years? Yeah. Anyhow, I'm glad to see his big butt go to Florida, hang out, golf by yourself, hang out with a wife who hates you, and your kids are never going to call you back from jail. Okay, he said. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. You said you'll be back this morning, but you know, one of the things that I try to think about too, though, is we just went through an, an election in the United States where seventy-four million people voted for Trump. Yep. So I mean, you know, you got to wonder. Like, well, there, I think a lot of seventy-four still, million voted Republican. You know, there's well, a lot of Republicans who will never vote Democrat. Uh, they'll vote for whoever is leading the Republican ticket, whether it's Trump or Mike Pence or Mitt Romney. That that vote's pretty solid. But I think one of the things we shouldn't forget is why did Trump enjoy the success that he did? Why did he become president? Why did he get 74 million votes? And I think a lot of it has to do with problems that are not going away. It's like distrust of elites, uh, distrust of the media, distrust of politics mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that stuff is not going away in a, well, in a very a, divided country. There's a lot of hollowed out small towns in the United States where there's no, no hope. Uh, the, right. the Democrats don't re represent hope to them. Uh, you've got, uh, and that's one reason why I think why, why he was able to come to uh, victory initially because there was so much dissatisfaction in so many small towns. Bonita in Arrington. Hi. 
Uh, guys, I, I, I was just watching the whole thing, and, um, uh, you know, it, uh, most of it brought me to tears. Um, uh, I, I, it was just like a sense of relief. And when I listened to Lady Gaga singing the national anthem, that just floored me. But the beauty that was happening that I saw around was everybody was so uplifted and smiling and feeling like we finally got rid of the bastard. We finally did it. And this country is going to do its best to get back to normal and, and be strong as it should be. I just found the whole thing uplifting. And that young poet laureate um, okay. was amazing. All right. Welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot on the show about long-term care facilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Long-term care has been ground zero for the virus in BC. Tragically, we've seen hundreds of deaths in long-term care homes. But what about the toll on seniors separated from their loved ones, the families pleading for access to their parents and their spouses? More and more families are now speaking up about access to their loved ones. They're frustrated with visitor restrictions in long-term care homes. Let's discuss now with my guest, Brenda Howard. Uh, she's been fighting for access to her mom in long-term care. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Brenda. Hi, thank you very much for having me and for uh, shedding some light on our plight. You bet. Thank you for being here. Can you tell me about your mom? Yes, my wonderful mom, Ethel, is almost 96 years old. She'll celebrate her 96 on March the 8th. Um, she's an incredible individual. She's been very active up until the pandemic. We still were taking her out, uh, walking over to her little local uh, restaurant on site for eggs a couple of times a week. We were out shopping, out um, seeing family. She was living a vibrant life despite the fact that she did need to uh, be living in a care residence. Right. And how has the pandemic restrictions affected you and your family? Uh, never in my lifetime did I expect to um, have a situation where I was not able to access my mom. My sister yeah. and I would visit my mom daily. So one of us was there every day. And this was paramount as part of her care team. Um, right. We are grateful for staff, obviously, in the residents and all that they do. But without us, you know, she's gone downhill drastically. Uh, she's no longer mobile because we would walk her every day. They don't have time to do that. She's lost 25 pounds, oh. five additional pounds in December alone. Uh, she's wasting away before our eyes, and we're frightened. We're desperately frightened that it's been almost a year now of being locked out and not able to see your mom. I just, it's hard to get your head around the fact that you can stand outside the window, but you're not allowed to care for her. I, there's just no other way. It's taken a terrible mental toll on uh, my sister, my brother, and I, and uh, and on my mom. Her cognitive decline is hugely exacerbated because of not being able to be stimulated by us. I mean, we're all she has to live for is us. Oh, that's thirty-four thousand seniors. If you don't have your family, yeah. why are you alive? Right. Of course, the government had brought in some some uh, new regulations that would allow people to be designated as an essential visitor, right? Like you could, so if you get this designation, you're an essential visitor, kind of a caregiver, that yes. you would have more frequent access to a resident in long-term care. Have you guys yes. been able to secure that, an essential visitor we, designation? We No, we have not. And we've been fighting for this since the very, very beginning. We started asking for essential caregiver. There's always been this list of people that are deemed essential. We deemed ourselves essential from the very beginning as per the guidelines set out by 
the um, health authority. Uh, this is for, they say that you're essential if there's need for help with mobility, personal care, cognitive or memory impairments, emotional support. Um, and we're, we're necessary to my mom on all of those grounds. Um, right. her, her mood alone, I mean, the, the staff have told us on a, on a basis that her mood is just so low when she cannot see us. This was even before the pandemic. If she didn't see us every day, her mood was low. So you can only imagine what 10 months, almost a year of, of isolation has done to her. It's, it's unbelievable. I, and we have, uh, we have applied. We have applied to the residents multiple times, at least three times. We've been denied with no reasons. And then we've appealed to the PCQO, which is what the government has said to do. The PCQO actually has no authority over the facility. So what they do is they're embroiling you in a process that actually has no end. So you appeal to PCQO, they go to the residence, the residence is the one that gets to determine it. And if for whatever reason, they deem that they don't want to give you that status, you're not granted it. Right. What is that Uh, PCTO? What does that stand for? Parent uh, patient uh, care quality office. So right. So this is they're supposed to fight for you. Right. So this is where so you you seek uh, essential visitor essential caregiver designation from the long term care facility. Yes. If if they say no, you can then appeal to, to this board. So that's and, and that hasn't worked out for you either. No, unfortunately, they just say that they are not able to overrule the facility. And uh, so then you're just you're back to the people that said no, deeming whether or not you're essential. And uh, when Minister Dix came out with the new guidelines on January 7th, we were very hopeful because it's very clear. Then on January 18th, they, they, they hadn't addressed it very clearly um, in the media. It was only when the media pressed them for the guidelines that they actually stated on January the 18th in their question period that they believe that everyone should have an essential caregiver. I assure you that is not happening. And we need it today. We have no more time. When Dr. Henry says that, you know, by the end of March, we'll be able to see our loved ones, that's 13 months. So many members of our group have lost their parents while waiting for essential caregiver status, never seeing their parents before they die. I, my mother's almost 96. Every day is yeah. a gift. I need it today, not mm. March 31st. Right. Has there been any COVID in your mom's care home? Yes, she has been locked down, isolated in her room for a total of 45 days um, at different times. There have been probably um, two or three outbreaks during this time. Um, each time, it's been one staff member that has brought it in. And um, in my mom's residence, there's two buildings. Um, in my mom's building, there's been only one resident ever, and it was a new transfer from a hospital who then passed away before it spread to anyone else. So we're very grateful right. for that. Oh. And the other building has had some more um, outbreaks, but can you can you uh, sort of under understand like the government's point of view on it? That uh, obviously these these are we're talking about people who are in many cases frail elderly seniors. In many cases, got comorbidities and, and co- complex health problems, very vulnerable to the virus. So obviously, they take measures to to make sure that it doesn't spread in long term care homes. I mean, that's one side of it, right? So can you see that side of it? You're just saying there's not enough balance. 
Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I do not want the doors thrown open to the right. residents. We absolutely must protect them. But number one, for a year, if you, you know, essential caregiver status means that one very careful family member who I assure you is going to take the health of their loved one very seriously, one, one person wearing PPE to go straight to their residence room and shut the door and spend time with the resident in their private room, right. it's, that's legal. That's your legal right to spend time with family. And that is so much less interaction than staff who are coming and going and then bringing my mom down to a visitor center where she gets a social visitor. Um, It could be once a week. It could be twice a week. It just depends if they have extra visits. We always take them. Um, but they're, they're then bringing her down. She sees four staff members to get her down to a, mm. a place in which to visit either at the window or in a visitor center. It's less exposure if we just don PPE. We, you actually have to take PPE training to be able to do this. And um, I promise you, we are going to do everything in our ability to be clean and safe. And, right. and there are people being designated. There are people being given this. Why is each individual residence being given the power to deem who gets it and who does not? It needs to be more equitable. Right. Speaking to Brenda Howard, she's fighting for access to her mom in, in long-term care. You, meant, you talked briefly there about the, the legal rights that people have to, to see their own loved ones, to see their own family members. Yes. I, under, I understand you've been working with, is it the BC Civil Liberties Association you've been working with on a potential legal challenge here? Yes, yes. We are looking at all avenues. Obviously, you can get embroiled in the process and they're just you know, outweighing, outweighting you um, because we are waiting for a vaccine. Obviously, that's a huge part of this as well. The essential caregiver status is also important because that person then gets the vaccine. So once you're deemed essential, you then get the vaccine. You're then safe to go into that building. So I can't stress strongly enough that each person that is able to get an essential caregiver must be able to do so. Right. I, I know that you're People are listening today that are probably in the same situation that you are. What, yeah. what would you like to see happen? Like, what changes do you feel are necessary right now? Isabel McKenzie, our seniors advocate, has been very, very clear. She believes that everyone should have an essential caregiver and a social visitor. That's two people per person, one right. allowed in the room with PPE and one not. Um, I'd like to see that the process be the exception and not the rule. We should not be embroiling families who are already in huge heartbreak, um, have to be embroiled in this process. And I'd like to see the residences have to address the guidelines that came out on January the 7th. They should have to give us reasons if they're denying us. And I believe they should be open compassionately to one essential caregiver per resident. Isabel McKenzie's office said there's only 25% of the 34,000 people in British Columbia that would even have an essential caregiver. That is not very many people that we're talking about. So if someone is fighting for that, please listen and please take a look at the reasons of why you're denying people. Okay. All right. Welcome back. As we continue my discussion with Brenda Howard, she's been fighting for access to her mom in a long-term care. And we go to your phone calls now. And Tim, can you tell me who the first caller is, please? Let's go to Sarah on the open line. Hey, Sarah. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. So I I guess I just have a a question or a point that I I would like to address that I've noticed I am an essential caregiver on the North Shore. I had a lady who we spent probably 30 hours one-on-one in long-term care when COVID hit. That was no more. 
Um, now we're fighting to get back in, and we keep getting told, no, 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 not yet. And yet there's another long-term care also on the North Shore where another resident is getting two caregivers four hours a day, twice a week. So the, the yeah. parameters for what they're doing are so different. And yeah, it, it, that's where we're having a real big challenge because how can one retirement, how can one long-term care say it's okay to have two totally different essential caregivers? They're not even family. These are both dementia, so they're both, you know, the, the ailments are the same. They both need help feeding, dressing, etc. So, anyways, that's my comment. Thank you. Sarah, Sarah, thank you for calling in. Brenda, I know you're working with other families on, on this issue. Are you hearing similar stories? Like, are people seeing differently applied standards and rules from, like, from facility to facility? Absolutely. 100%. Sarah is exactly right and is incredibly frustrating. Now, I don't want to take away one person's essential caregiver. I am careful when I'm speaking um, because I'm grateful every time somebody has somebody, but it is so inequitable. There are residences presently that are allowing for an essential and a social for every single person in their building. And that's wonderful. That is exactly what they should be doing. And they're policing it. They're making sure these people are safe. There's testing that can be done. We're willing to do rapid testing. We're willing to pay for it if we needed to. But uh, we're just saying there are ways, there are safe ways in which to achieve this. And Sarah is right. It's extremely frustrating when you know someone has access to their loved one and you do not and for no reason. Let's go to Barb on the open line calling from Kamloops. Hi, Barb. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I I lost my mother two years ago in 2018. Um, In 2017, the year before, I was one of the volunteers for the Office of the Seniors Advocate who did the survey of all the seniors in all long-term care throughout BC because I I felt, even at that time, you know, for the the plight of many of the the residents in long-term care. So when mom died, of course, in 2018, I I was very sad. But when 2020 came along, I was very glad she was gone. And uh, wow. all of my wow. friends and other family members who have lost parents during this last year, they say the same thing. Yes, I miss my mom or my dad, but I'm so glad they're gone and not having to go through this. It's a terrible place for seniors com- right I now. I applaud your comments. I applaud your comments, Barb. Thank you. Thank you, Barb, for sharing that. I'm sorry you lost your mom. Let's go to Evelyn in New West. Hi. Hi. Um, my father is in long-term care, and we were just doing the window visits, and he was deteriorating before our very eyes. He was six three man, down to under 100 pounds. Literally every time we went to see him, he was less than. He got COVID, and we were granted oh. end-of-life visits. He turned around. like He actually beat COVID. They, the care home was allowing us to visit him every single day, and um, he's thriving. Wow, that's so he amazing. Has, yeah, my my sisters and I, we see him, we have a schedule. Every day he has one of us go in and hug him and kiss him, and he is, like, gaining weight and doing well, and he's 90. Oh, my goodness, that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. do you think he was able to beat COVID because he had your support, he had his family yes, with him? he yeah. beat COVID Absolutely. because he saw his daughters, and he was able to hold our hands, and he hadn't since April. Absolutely. Wow. That's and so fantastic. I love to hear this. Do you still have access to him? And um, and we were going to lose him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. And Brenda, there there is an example of what we're talking about uh, how people are deteriorating when they're separated from your from your loved ones. Just got a minute left here, but your thoughts. 
Yes, no, this is her example is brilliant because yeah. this is what we're saying. Without us, they have no will to fight, no will to live. My mom's taken to her bed. She never does that. And so we're just saying, please allow us to have access so these people do not die alone. They are dying and they're dying without us. Give us the essential caregiver status. It is just exactly what she said. They just need love and our safe touch and they will rally. There are many, many cases of this, many cases. Families for Change is our Facebook page. And uh, if you want to join us and join in the discussion, and um, we just respectfully want to ask our government to be fair, be equitable, and allow us to be essential care partners in this fight against COVID-19. Brenda, thanks for coming on and sharing your story today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Welcome back. Here we go now with one of those endless debates. This is the eternal question. If you have a pet cat, should you let your cat outside? Should the cat be allowed to do what cats do, is roam around outside? But what about all those poor birds those cats are slaughtering? It has sparked the debate. Should you be required to have your cat on a leash outside? Our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now with a discussion on cat bylaws. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Should there be stricter bylaws around cats? Should all pet cats be strictly indoor cats? These are fascinating questions because any cat owner can tell you themselves they don't truly own said cat. What they have is the cat's permission to hang out and feed it every now and then. Cats have a long memory, and not a single one has forgotten that in ancient Egypt they were once worshipped and believed to bring good luck to your home if you were lucky enough to have one. So maybe today cats feel like the rules just don't apply. We can get into a further discussion with this. We're now joined by Megan Kant, Manager and Companion Animal Welfare Science and Policy with the BCSPCA. Good morning, Megan. Thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, as somebody who does have a cat, I was told right away that she should be strictly an indoor cat based on her breed, but different owners have different breeds and different philosophies. So on the notion of letting cats roam outside... I'd like to know what are some of the risks associated with letting this happen, uh, not to just the cat themselves, but the ripple effect that can actually occur from all of this. Uh, Definitely there are quite a few dangers to cats themselves. Um, Of course, there's busy roads and the risk of them getting hit by cars. When they're outdoors, they can be exposed to, you know, different diseases and parasites. Um, You know, here in the city where there are coyotes, they can also be at risk of attack from coyotes. And then, of course, because cats are encountering each other, they can definitely get into fights with each other. And I'd also want to mention that um, cats themselves are predators, so there is the impact on birds and other wildlife to consider that they, they definitely do prey on wildlife, too. I have heard that before. Certain critters and birds will find themselves in danger because there's a lot of cats roaming the streets at night. And a basic understanding of how a healthy ecosystem should work tells us that upsetting the balance by letting cats annihilate, you know, a critter or a bird population can have serious consequences to the environment as a whole. Exactly. I mean, cats, humans have basically introduced them into the landscape. So birds and other wildlife are already facing their usual threats that they would face, but, you know, like raptors and that sort of thing. But cats are an additive pressure on their populations, and they definitely have an impact. I'll play devil's advocate here a moment, because someone will say, 
a cat is still predator by definition, and they are omnivores, plus they have nocturnal traits. So letting them outside is a form of exercise and healthy behavior for these animals, and instead keeping them cooped up inside is the unhealthy thing to do. Is there a right answer for something like this? I mean, definitely it's a tricky one because, of course, when cats are outside, they are able to perform, as you say, a lot of their natural behaviors, like hunting and climbing and that sort of thing. But when you weigh the risks to the cats themselves, as well as the wildlife considerations, I think the important thing is to keep your cats indoors, but then consider the indoor environment and see what you might be able to do in order to provide those opportunities indoors or under containment or supervision to to have those natural behaviors. So, you know, providing them different toys, perching opportunities in the house, all of these can help them fulfill the same need without putting them at risk outside. When you go and walk your dog on a leash, nobody bats an eye. But if you decide to take your cat on a walk on a leash, suddenly you're the talk of the town and people think you're bizarre and you become uh, the thing of internet jokes. But is this maybe one approach to actually finding that right balance to this issue? Getting your cat that outdoor activity, the exercise, but making sure you're in control of what they're doing by having them attached by a leash. Exactly. I mean, definitely, I think I've seen more and more people. Um, so hopefully over time, we won't be raising our eyebrows as much to cats being on a leash. And of course, for any individual kind of considering that with their own cat, you want to look at your own cat's personality. If they tend to be, you know, a shyer or a more nervous cat, you might, it might not be the best. They might find that a little overwhelming. But if you have a cat that's bold, curious, wants to explore things, definitely, definitely give it a go. And the thing, of course, is to do it gradually so that you're not just putting them on a leash and taking them outside right away, that you're, you're going slowly using treats, getting them used to the harness and leash indoors before you take them outside, and then when you are taking them outside, perhaps sticking close to home at first just as they get used to it. Now, earlier this week, the city of Richmond was looking to change their laws and introduce a new bylaw to regulate the way cat owners could let their pets outside. Since then, we have learned the city will instead work with the uh, BCSPCA on new ways to educate cat owners on the right way to govern their pets. But in theory, would you support the creation of such a bylaw? Uh, definitely we would. I think that there can be kind of a multifaceted approach um, because people, many people are so used to letting their cats outdoors. I think, of course, it could be paired with education to give people the information and the tools they need in order to make that transition. But I think, you know, a while ago, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, dogs were, were free roaming and people perhaps were, were not considering that an issue. Then we passed bylaws and now, you know, definitely, as you said earlier, right, that a dog on a leash is normal. So I think that uh, cat bylaws are just going to start to catch up to dog bylaws and we'll see more of them put in place as municipalities start to have these discussions. My main philosophy on pets is that there is no such thing as a bad pet. There are, however bad pet owners. So I think the educational campaign is critical because a cat owner letting their cat outside might only be thinking about what's in the best interest of their cat, but they need to start getting into the habit of considering that bigger picture. Yeah, I think it's great if people consider it from many angles. So I think a lot of people are letting their cats outdoors strictly thinking about their cats, as we said earlier, about natural behaviors and thinking that it's normal and natural for cats to be outdoors. But I think if we start to have these discussions that there are different ways of doing things to still fulfill the cat's needs, but exactly consider your neighbors as well, consider wildlife, consider the larger impact, and we'll move in that direction, I think, for sure. And taking a step back, outside of just Richmond, we know certain other municipalities have already started looking at similar bylaws. Are we slowly moving towards a scenario where there's actually going to be consistent rules in place across Metro Vancouver and different municipalities for policies such as this? 
I think if we look long term, that that's I would say that that's the direction that we are headed. That municipalities are finding that these bylaws are working in their communities, and as municipalities look to each other for examples of what's working, I think we'll see more and more adopt them for sure. She is Megan Kant, Manager in Companion Animal Welfare Science and Policy with the BCSPCA. Megan, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you so much. All right, John Jang joins me now. Good job on that, John. It's an interesting issue for sure. Now, we're told that Victoria is the only major BC city that has mm-hmm. a law that says you got to have a cat on a leash if you go outside with your cat or you risk a $150 fine. I live in Victoria. I don't, I can rarely remember any time I've seen someone walking a cat on a leash. <laughs> maybe once or twice, maybe. You know, so I don't know how much people are following this rule or what kind of enforcement they have on it, but I don't know. You got a cat, right? So what do you think about this? Should, should cats be kept indoors, do you think, or, well, or let them outside? I'll, I'll ex- yeah, I'll explain. Like, my cat never goes outdoors because yeah. of what my vet told me when I first got her is that you should always keep her indoors. She's an indoor breed. So I said, okay, sure, not a problem. She's turning 15 years old this year in oh. March. So she's lived a good, healthy, long life. And there's been no, you know, emergency surgeries or anything like that. So she's been p- pretty healthy. And she's uh, 15, like I said. So I would say if I ever thought about taking her outside, I did try to put a collar on her once, Mike, and I had never seen my cat do a backflip until that moment (laughs) when I put the collar on her. She hated it. So I just knew right away this isn't going to work. But I know, like I've seen internet videos, I'm sure you have as well, where like cats are happy to be taken on walks with a leash on. It's it's really interesting. Well, I remember when I was a kid, we had a cat and it was an outdoor cat and he was he was like a tomcat and he used to get in a lot of trouble. He would disappear for a couple of days on end and then mm-hmm. come home and he, I guess he'd be fighting with other cats because he'd come home kind of beat up. So, I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if that was a good thing. I, I was a kid. I, I, what did I know? But uh, I know that my neighbor uh, had an outdoor cat for a long time and sometimes my neighbor's cat would come into my yard and I actually didn't mind it because... There was, I, I never saw any kind of a rat or a mouse around there. I mean, this cat looked like it was a pretty good mouser. All right, here we go. As usual, uh, phone boards lit up on this one. Everyone wants to have their say on whether your cat should be let outside. Some municipalities taking a look at cat leash bylaws now. John Jang is with me. He's a show. He's a contributor here on the show. Let's go right to your phone calls. Leslie and Burnaby. Hey, Leslie. Hi, good morning, dear. Hi. Uh, we had, my husband was breeding canaries. He had 200. We had two Sheltie dogs. We had four cats. They never went after the birds. They, we trained the cats to stay in their own yard. Uh, the dogs, mm. of course, would go out on a leash. We'd take the cats and then the dog camping, like four cats and uh, two dogs camping. Wow. They had their own little halters, and my husband would put them on a 25-foot rope, everybody, and stake <laughs> them in the ground. And aim at night, they'd go in their little cat house in the campground but uh, never my cats don't go out into anybody's yard they got to do their duty they got their own little area in the yard where they go and they also have their little box in the house okay well that's pretty impressive was it difficult to train the cats to do that to stay in the yard <laughs> well what we did to keep them in the yard we had made a chain link fence all around our yard we had the dogs first and there was no problem with the dogs uh, with the cats, uh, when they were tiny, they tried to crawl under the gate a bit. Yeah. So my husband would go outside in the yard with a long piece of stick, and when the cat would come toward the fence, he'd hit the fence with the stick, and the cat would run away. So the cats, all these years, learned to do that. You stay away from the fence. They yeah. go into the flower bed because I got roses all around my yard. They go lay in the flower bed and look at the people and the dogs going by. 
Okay. Okay, Leslie, thank you for that. Well, I don't know. Those sound like some pretty obedient cats. I'm not sure all cats would respond to that kind of training, though. Carol in Parksville. Hi, Carol. Hi, Mike. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. We have a cat that we got from the SPCA in 2007, and he's been on leash every day, and we've never had a problem with him walking around the yard with me. Okay. And uh, we had another cat at the time that was uh, more of a wild cat. We put him on leash, and he also was very good. And the two of them used to walk as my husband and I would walk them. Okay, that's very interesting. Do you think there should be a law that people should be required to have their cat in a leash if they go outside? Well, I don't know. If they go outside, I I would like that to happen. I know it's yeah. not possible for all cats, but we have so many other cats come into our yard that it's upsetting because they do get the birds, they get the wild rabbits. You know, yeah. it's, it's sad. But, it is. You know, I mean, it's hard to regulate other people, but, I mean, I wish the neighbors around here would keep their cats in because our cat gets upset in the middle of the night seeing these cats out there. Mm. Okay, Carol, thanks for that. Let's go to Robert on the line in Richmond. Hi, Robert. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Thank you for my, uh, taking my call. Sure. So I just wanted to say that um, I don't think that really cats on a leash um, is the answer to the problem. I think that if a cat is going to be outdoors, okay, I'm getting I'm getting some brutal I'm getting some brutal feedback from you there. I don't know if you got your radio on or something. So but. I don't think that uh, cats should be it should be mandatory. They're on a leash. I think that they should be licensed if they're going to be outdoors, just like a dog. Put a, a collar okay. on your cat with a with a license on it and a small bell to. Uh, scare away any songbirds that they may be trying to attack. Okay, Robert. Okay, Robert. Thanks for the call, John. It's interesting, you know, the idea of licensing cats. I think there's a small number of municipalities in BC that do that, and I know some people will try to put, you know, bell the cat, put the put a bell yeah. on your bell on your cat. But you know what? These cats are smart, man. They they know how to they know how to silence that bell. They, they can yeah, tuck, exactly. They, they can tuck their chin down and silence that bell. I've seen it. I mean, they're predators, right? They learn yeah. to adapt. But I would, I would also worry that the bell might attract other larger predators, raccoons, coyotes, as we sort of heard. Oh. So it works both ways. It might scare off the little birds and critters, but it won't scare off the bigger ones. I know. I, I knew a guy once who he had a cat. And this cat was pretty lethal. It was taking down a lot of birds. So he put a, a bell on the cat's collar. And then one day he saw the cat in the yard and the cat would like tuck its chin in. So to and it was and to put the bell kind of tuck the 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 bell into its into its neck, you know what I mean? Like just tilt its chest, <laughs> like it had figured it out. It figured out how to silence the bell so that, that is it devious. could yeah. yeah, so it could continue to slaughter the birds. I mean, this cat was just it was a killer. This cat. Let's go to Vicky in Kelowna. Hey, Vicky. Hey, how are you? I'm good. What do um, you think? I had a cat that was on a leash all the time. And uh, when she saw him, we had a dog at the same time, and when she saw me get the dog leash out, she was right there because she was coming too. So we would go out trotting away, and, uh, well, cats don't go very far in one uh, walk. So when she got tired, she would sit in front of me, and then I knew I should pick her up and put her on my shoulder. She'd wrap herself around my neck, and away we'd go. And then when she was oh. ready to get down and walk again, she'd kind of slither a little bit down my shoulder, and I'd put her on the ground, and away we'd go. But people who let their cats go outside and roam don't yeah. realize how big their vet bills are going to be, because yeah. when they eat birds or rodents or anything out there, they're getting parasites and worms, Ooh. tapeworms, you name yeah. it. 
Yeah. So okay. you really should keep your cat indoors. And I do believe in having cats licensed. 